It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine, and I have such an exciting show for you today. You're just going to love this. You know, many of us suffer from nightmares, and those that are generated by trauma are among the most insidious and frightening ones we can have, whether it is the big T trauma, such as abuse, violence, oppression, or a small trauma, or a small T trauma, such as microaggression, a fender bender, or minor surgery. These events can stretch their sticky fingers into our night dreams and haunt our daylight hours. Today's special guest, Linda Yael Schiller, MSW, L-I-C-S-W, is the author of PTSD, PTS Dreams. Let me get that right. PTS Dreams, and Dreams is a D, so it's PTS Dreams. Transform your nightmares from trauma through healing dream work. Um, PTS Dreams is an innovative, compassionate, and comprehensive guide to healing traumatic nightmares through active dream work. Linda Schiller is a mind, body, and spiritual psychologist, consultant, author, and international teacher, four decades of experience in both dream work and trauma treatment. Uh, Good morning, Linda, and welcome to A Fine Time for Healing. Good morning, Randy. Thank you for having me on your show. My pleasure. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. This is such a cool topic. Okay, so what is the difference between a dream and a nightmare? Let's start there. Okay, good place to start. Uh, any dream has a storyline to it. We wake up and there's this happened and then that happened and there's sort of a narrative. So the main part of a dream is the storyline narrative. Running alongside interwoven through the story is what I call the emotional narrative. And the emotional narrative is simply what are our feelings, what are our emotions as we move through parts of the dream. So sort of in a nutshell, if the emotions, by and large, as we move through the dream, are pleasant, fun, exciting, nice, then it's a lovely dream. However, if our emotions are upset, worried, irritated, we might call that a bad dream. But if our emotions go a little bit farther up the upset scale to terrified, really anxious, panic-stricken grief-stricken, enraged, then by definition we have what we would call a nightmare. It has to do with the emotions connected with the story of the dream. Okay, thank you. Um, So are there ordinary and unordinary nightmares? Well, there are lots of different possibilities that might generate a nightmare, and some of them are more sort of normative or developmentally uh, commonly occurring. Like with young kids, for example, there's a period of time, you know, often in latency age, where children start getting afraid of the monster in the closet or the 
boogeyman under the bed. And this doesn't necessarily mean that they have experienced trauma, but they are little people in a world where everyone else is bigger than them and tells them what to do, and they really do have very little control over their lives. So having nightmares that reflect that is simply a reflection of their daily life. So that can be one sort of normative type of nightmare. Then we have hormonal changes that can affect our dreaming life that during um, adolescence, during menopause, during menstrual cycles. Um, I've heard women who have been pregnant have reported amazingly uh, bizarre nightmares. So that can affect our dreams. And then there are the nightmares that have their roots in some kind of either personal or familial or global trauma where the roots are not just from a, a naturally occurring phenomena in our life, but from bad things that have happened to us. And that would be a, a nightmare um, from trauma, based on trauma, right? Yes. Right, right. The ones you that also, are... Mm-hmm. And you also said that um, food, drugs, and illness can cause ordinary nightmare, nightmares. I know that I've experienced that. Yeah, sometimes, you know, if you did eat that piece of fish that was just a little bit off or that, you know, spicy dinner the night before and you have a little indigestion, absolutely, because our bodies and our minds are, are, are one package, I like to say. They're intimately connected. So what affects one affects the other. So absolutely, we can be affected by food. We can have dreams that are generated or nightmares by medications that we take or drugs that we ingest for um, non-medical purposes. Absolutely. So let's talk about trauma. What, how do you define trauma? Trauma, it, there are a few different kinds of traumas, but in general, it, there are two parts. There's the objective and the subjective parts of trauma. The objective part is something painful, difficult, scary, terrifying happens to you or someone around you or both that overwhelms and overloads your system. So that's sort of in a nutshell. And then our system tries to cope with these terrifying experiences in a variety of different ways, which then generate the various symptoms, including nightmares, that can be the result or the sequelae of being in a traumatic experience. So there's long-term or chronic trauma, and there's short-term or acute trauma. And just like the the words would sound, acute trauma is one time, two times something happened. You have been, um, uh, your your house has been flooded. You're in a flood zone. There's been a natural disaster. There's been a terrible car accident. You had an operation of a certain kind once. Um, So these are one-time traumas that are certainly very traumatic, but they don't go on and on and on for years those would be the public types of traumas that there's really no question in anyone's mind whether or not it happened. The other kind of trauma, the private trauma, are the kinds that usually happen behind closed doors in the privacy of someone's home or an institution or a a youth group or a religious order or a school where it is often a personal violation of someone's body through physical, sexual, or emotional abuse or growing up in a very dysfunctional family, a, a substance-abusing family system, a, a narcissistic family system, 
where the trauma is not seen very often by people outside of the family unit or outside of the particular group. So then in addition to what's actually happening, we have the added layer of secrecy or the child or person living in that situation not being believed that it's really happening, that's really happened to them by other people on the outside. So there becomes a whole added layer then of trauma around whether or not they are able to find or get support, belief, and safety from the things that they're living in and experiencing. And sometimes this can go on for a long time, so then that becomes the nature of chronic trauma. Mm, Okay, and I think you're speaking to so many people in my audience um, because that's the work that I do um, with people. So, yeah, so, yeah, it can linger until it is addressed. It can go on for a lifetime. You know, we we carry our childhood trauma with us um, until we find a way to release that and and make changes. Um, We can also, you say in your book, there can also be ancestry, ancestral trauma or we can inherit something from our ancestors what is that about yes so there's a relatively new science called epigenetics that talks about this inherited ancestral trauma and it's also known in a form of therapy called ifs internal family systems it's called a legacy burden so we inherit many characteristics from our relatives, our hair color and our eye color and our body type. But in addition to that, we inherit genotypes for how to relate, how to respond, what to do in the face of various situations in the world. And there are two layers to this. One is when we're parented by parents who have their own distress and they parent it in certain, us in certain ways, we develop the same reaction to life events as our parents had, even if we didn't go through it ourselves because we were parented by people who did. So if, for example, our parents or our grandparents or our great-grandparents were in, grew up in a war zone or were affected by pogroms or the Holocaust or lived through a famine and then they parented their children from that place of fear and deficit and the sense that the world is a dangerous place or there won't be enough to eat. The children in that family grow up with those same thoughts and those same uh, um, belief systems, even if they themselves didn't go through it. And then that gets passed on to the next generation. And then that gets passed on to the next generation. For example, just as a, 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 a sort of a, not really a funny story, but a, an anecdotal piece. We save, in my family, we save rubber bands. Why? Well, my mom did. And why did she? Well, my grandmother did. And we put them over the doorknobs <laughs> of uh, my cellar door, and that's where we store them. And we always have rubber bands. They're handy. You know, the, you tie up a food so it wouldn't go stale. You put a package together. But where did that come from? And it turns out that when my grandma was growing up, their family was very, very poor, and they just saved everything, right? You know, people who grew up during the Depression, little bits of string, little bits of tinfoil, little bits of rubber band, because you never know if you're going to need it. And so that sort of benign and in a little way sort of funny tradition has been passed down in our family system, but then there are other things that get passed down that are are less benign um, when we have a family history of trauma. 
And um, we see this in many, in all cultures in different ways. And even in sacred literature, it's written about how the, quote, the sins of the fathers are, are, are passed down through seven generations to the children. And there's actually some truth in that because it does take a while to clear a, a, an imprint of traumatic response to a life circumstance, even when the future generations aren't living through it anymore. So that's how in a bit how of do a, we clear it? How do, how do how do we clear that? Well, that's a great question. There's a, there's a lot of different ways, and and one way is bringing up into consciousness what was previously unconscious. So there are a number of authors right now writing about ancestral legacies. And I think the first person I read was uh, Mark Wallen, and he wrote a book called It Didn't Start With You, which is, I think, a great title. And he talks about how people have various family patterns or various um, habits or various belief systems. They have no idea where it came from. When they are able to discover, and this is just one piece, when they are able to discover what is in their family history and they can go, oh, my God, that's where this belief system came from or that's where this habit came from. It's not me. It suddenly opens up the field and sort of clears the air to realize this is an old pattern that developed a long time ago as a self-protective mechanism perhaps, but it's no longer needed so I can let go of it. And sometimes knowledge alone will help a clear pattern. Other times we need to really work on it, and we need to not only get conscious of what we're carrying, what is really us or our life and what is not, and then working with professionals and or finding ways to tune in to the wisdom of your subconscious so that you can work with these patterns. And one of the best ways to do that is through attending to our dreams and nightmares and working with them. Okay, perfect. Okay, and that's what we're talking about today. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's really important um, for, uh, you know, I find that it's a great motivation for people to maybe check um, their behaviors or their emotions or where this all came from, because if, especially if you have children. Because if you right. don't want your children to suffer or to experience the same thing and have to work through it, you work through it, and then you can sort of change that legacy, right? Exactly right. That is often a motivation that gets people into paying attention to the nightmares that have been haunting them or the beliefs that have been haunting them for years that they are not comfortable with or not happy with so that they don't pass it on to yet another generation. Yes. Okay, so let's talk about... Um, Um, how we dissociate and fragment memories and how that affects our dreams. Great. So when someone has experienced trauma, we have many ways of responding to the traumatic event that tries to keep us in some form of safety. If If we're not able to leave an upsetting situation if we're stuck, if we're a child in in an abusive home environment in some way, or if we're trapped somewhere in any form of being trapped and we can't physically get away, our minds have a brilliant strategy for separating our mind and body so that we can go away in our mind to a safe place. 
So if your body is stuck in a family system, for example, where it's really not safe, your mind develops a, a fragmentation or what's called a dissociative response where your mind goes somewhere else, even if your body is still there in the abusive environment or the upsetting environment. So it's kind of like being in two places at once. And it actually keeps people balanced or from uh, having uh, psychotic breaks because they're able to, if they're able to sort of compartmentalize and traverse these worlds, they can find little imaginary havens for themselves. It becomes a problem when the behavior of compartmentalizing and separating out from where you are continues throughout life or into adulthood into a time when it's A, long, no longer necessary, and B, actually interferes with you being able to show up and be completely present for your life and the people in your life. So just to give you an example of, of dissociation, um, well, there's a, there's a spectrum, there's a continuum of dissociation. And at one end of the spectrum is what we call everyday, normal, healthy dissociation. So this is the kind of thing like, highway hypnosis. So most of us, most of your listeners probably have had some experience where you're driving on the highway and you realize, oh dear, 10 minutes ago I missed my exit and I didn't even notice it and who's been driving the car for the last 10 minutes? <laughs> so that's a form actually of temporary, ordinary daily dissociation. Or you're sitting at a workshop or a lecture and you realize, up. Oh, the professor called on me, and I have no idea what they're asking me to say because I was thinking about what I'm going to have for dinner tonight or what I'm going to do on the weekend. That's a form of dissociation, too. Your body was sitting in the chair, but your mind was off planning dinner or on the beach. So these are normative types of dissociation. As we move down the continuum to the part of dissociation that is more trauma-related, it's when our emotions are so overwhelming that our mind helps us separate what's happening to our body and what's happening as to our emotional state into two separate components so we get a respite and we don't have to feel the overwhelm until such time as we're safe enough and secure enough to heal and address it. So these are the folks who will tell you with a completely calm demeanor and straight face about the horrible childhood they endured. And they said, yeah, well, that was a long time ago. I don't think about it anymore. Um, who have sort of, sort of separated out the emotions. Um, this is also the person who uh, is in a, a car accident and, and, God forbid, ran over uh, a, a person. And they get out of the car and they lift up their car and pull the person out to safety. Where did they find that superhuman strength? Well, that was a, a form of dissociation as well. As we move down the spectrum on this dissociative continuum, the far end of this fragmentation of self is what we used to call multiple personality disorder, but is now known as DID or dissociative identity disorder, where the self parts become so fragmented that they're not even aware of each other. And they're almost like two or more different people inhabiting the same body. So what does this all have to do with dreams and nightmares? Sometimes our memories and our minds in its wisdom shuts off our knowledge of something that happened to us that it's too overwhelming for us to handle. Later on, when our body-mind system assesses we can handle this now, it starts to come back to us. 
in images, in fragments, in dreams, and sometimes through our nightmares we get one or two forms of different types of memories returning. There's one form called a memory burst, which is an actual event of something that happened to us that we had quote-unquote forgotten or had been suppressed that sort of pops through fully blown in our dream, in our nightmare. That's one type. And then the other type are the nightmares that come through with imagery and metaphor and association where we haven't actually had happen to us the things we're dreaming about, but the emotional narrative, going back to the emotional narrative, is connecting the pieces of the nightmare we're having with the events that we actually occurred. So this is how the dissociative parts of us can come back through our dreams and our nightmares. And one quick caution before I give you a chance to pop in here. Um, <laughs> we never want to assume that when we're talking with someone or working with someone who has a nightmare, we don't want to assume that this is an actual factual memory because then we get into very tricky territory there. We want to hold the possibility that it might be pointing to something that happened in the past, but we don't want to assume that it is. We want to question and wonder and guide, but hold open many possibilities of what may or may not have happened, and in particular, the possibility that this is, in fact, a, a metaphor for something as opposed to actuality, because um, it's not our job to decide what the meaning of the dream is for the dreamer. That's the job of the dreamer, him or herself. They're the ultimate authority in what their dream means to them. Right. I think um, we hear a lot about um, sexual abuse where people don't remember and then all of a sudden, you know, something wakes them up or they have a dream or something, whatever mm -hmm. triggered, and then they have this memory. And um, and then there's it's not factual. You know, they, they can't prove it and the family gets all <laughs> torn apart and, and you know. So I, it, I, I, I understand why you would say that you would, you know, really proceed with caution with these things because, you know, they, they can be um, representative, but not of the actual, you know, experience. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but just I wanted to pop in and say it doesn't mean that it's not factual because whether or not it happened is different than whether or not we can prove it, right? Mm. So there's our, our experienced reality, but at a certain point in time, it comes down to he said, she said. Who's right, who's wrong? Somebody's denying it, somebody's not denying it, somebody's seeing this happen. We see this over and over again, and all over, all over the media right. these days are like, someone says this happened, someone says, no, I didn't do that, and like, who's telling the truth? That's not for us to decide when we're working with um, distressing family dynamics. But what I tell my clients when I work with them about nightmares is that their felt sense and their emotional response of what it was like to grow up in their family is their truth, whether or not there are verifiable facts on the outside. So mm -hmm. that's a little bit the difference between whether it's true or not true. Okay. All right. So the feel, it's really about the feeling and the emotions that we have within the dream. Um, it doesn't mean it's literal, a literal um, expose of, of what we experience, but um, we have to identify how it's affecting us and go from there. And I guess exactly. that's what you're saying, right? Okay. Exactly right, yeah. Okay. Um, what 
you talk about um, in chapter five. You talk about the layers of your of our dreams, the PARDES, P-A-R-D-E-S system. What is that? Sure. So this is a system I developed for looking at the multiple layers of simultaneous truth that a dream might have, because a dream doesn't only mean just one thing. It has multiple layers that can all be simultaneously true. So I developed a system called the Pardes Method to help us um, identify and work with these different layers of the dream. And the word Pardes itself comes from the Hebrew word for orchard. It simply means orchard when you translate it, and it's often used as an allegory for the Garden of Eden. But it is also an acronym, and it's an acronym for how we read sacred text through ever-deepening layers of inquiry. So each of the letters stands for something. The P in Pardes is the first letter of the word pshat in Hebrew, which in English means the simple layer or simple. So this is um, the story of the dream. This is the dream as we've dreamt it, what happened, who was there, and where it happened. That's the pshat layer. We didn't do anything really with that except we noticed that. The second layer is the R, which stands for remez in Hebrew, which means hint or hinted at. So the second layer is when we begin to pay attention to our dream and we start to make associations that we don't have to work too too hard to. Like, oh yeah, this reminds me of that and I dreamt about having jambalaya last night because I know I'm planning a trip to um, Louisiana and I I might eat it there. So, oh yeah, that's the connection and it's not too hard to to put those connections together. Or um, I got a I, I dreamt last night about seeing this certain friend who I haven't seen in a long time, and I'm going to see them um, in a couple of weeks, or I just saw them a few days ago, and that's why they showed up in my dream. Okay, there's an association. The next layer is the D, or the drosh, and drosh is from the word lidrosh, which means to pursue or chase after. And also, a drash is often an accompanying story that the rabbi or the religious leader will make about the text um, of the Torah portion for that week if someone is going to synagogue. And at this layer, the drash layer, is when we do a variety of different types of dream work interventions to help peel back the layers of the dream onion to get to these deeper layers of associations to unpack the metaphors, to unpack the images, to see where actually our dream is, is pointing us toward and to really, as the name of this layer reflects, to, to pursue it, to chase after it. And then the final layer, the S, is for Sod, and Sod is translated as secret. And at this layer, it's the mystical the transpersonal layer, the place where we can travel across time and space and dimensions and perhaps peek around the corner of time. This is where prophetic dreams come in. This is where connecting with departed relatives come in. This is where our sense of awe and connection with the divine, however we understand who and what that is, may occur. And this is the layer at which we can dream not only for ourselves, but we can dream for other people and for our planet as well. That's really interesting. Pardes. So it's Pardes. So you said Pardes is a word, is a Hebrew word? Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Yeah. And as are as is the acronyms. Okay. Of of each letter. Okay. Um, so let's talk about your method, your protocol, which is the Gaia method, um, the guided active imagination approach for careful nightmare healing. G A I A. What is this? Thanks. So. As someone who, in addition to doing dream work for many, many years, I'm also a trauma treatment therapist, and I have been working with people who have had various traumatic events in their life and are healing for for many, many years. And I know that the nightmares can be very, very scary. And when we're working with someone in a healing capacity, the last thing we want to do is re-traumatize them or bring them to a place where they're overwhelmed and can't cope again because that was part of the original problem. So I developed a method for slow and careful work with nightmares to mitigate the possibility of abreaction or or overreactivity to the material in the nightmare. When we're working with a regular dream or with a bad dream that isn't quite so terrifying, we don't have to go as slowly as I'm going to describe because the chance of someone getting traumatized by talking about their dream is probably not going to be there. But if we're working with someone who has a high upset response in their dream, so for thinking about like when you go to the doctor's office, they ask you to rate your pain on a scale of zero to ten, how bad is it? In um, uh, psychological work, there's a, a protocol called the SUDS scale, which stands for Subjective Unit of Distress. And this is developed through both EMDR, uh, which is a really wonderful trauma treatment protocol, as well as a lot of other, used in a lot of other um, body, mind, and energy medicine techniques. But basically it means rating your level of distress. You have a dream, how distressing is it between zero and ten? If it's a five or less, you might not need the Gaia protocol, but if it's a five or more, you might want to go really slowly and carefully. So it's based on two legs, the Gaia protocol. One is Jungian guided active, excuse me, the Jungian active imagination that Carl Jung designed of re-entering a dream state and then working inside of the dream to dialogue with the characters, to gain more information and create changes within the dream after we've awakened. And then the other leg of the protocol is based on best practice trauma treatment. So there are two parts and a bridge. And part one is basically get the the dreamer as safe as possible before going into the belly of the dream. So help your dreamer to gather up people that they feel safe and comfortable with. These can be friends, family, professionals, people who are alive in their world, people who are departed relatives or dead, imaginary characters. Um, One of my uh, clients chose to bring Gandalf from Lord of the Rings with him into his posse of safe people to protect him. Um, Bring any objects, safety or comfort objects that will help them feel safe. One of my little kids brought her, her blankie with her into the dream so she would feel safe before going in to meet the, the monster who was there. Um, one of my brilliant millennials brought her her cell phone 
and this was great for several reasons. One is she would be connected. Her cell phone would able allow her to reach out and, and call someone. There was a tracking device on her phone, she said, so if she got lost in the dream, someone could help find her. And three, her phone has a flashlight on it, too. So because it was dark in there, she could put the flashlight on if she needed. So I thought, what a great object to bring with you <laughs> into your dream. Um, so we gather up all of the protections that the person might need to feel really safe. So that's part one. Part two, well, actually, before part two, we do the bridge. And in the bridge, we invite the person to now peek inside the dream before going into it and see, is there anything or anyone already there in your mind, in your heart, in your subconscious that showed up in your dream that you might not have noticed or you might not have mentioned at first, but that's actually a safe person or a safe place for you that you already had? And very, very often people will say, oh, yeah, now that you mention it, I notice there is this, you know, beautiful flower over here that is so beautiful, and when I look at it, I feel peaceful, and I know this is the flower of hope. And somehow they just knew that, and they're in their dreams. So they'll say, great, go sit by the flower of hope and, and feel the energy of this flower before we, we work in the dream. Or they might notice a person who they didn't see before, who for them is a representation of Archangel Michael, for example. And they great, Michael was already with you in the dream. Bring him along as well. So then we go into part two, where we bring all of the safety characters, objects, people, alive or dead, real or imaginary, with us to confront or address or deal with the scary monsters, the scary events, the traumatic experiences that happened in the dream from a place of connection and safety so that this time when they're facing the demons, they don't have to do it alone or without help. And that makes so much difference. Now, when you talk about bringing them into your dreams, are you talking about um, bringing them into the memory of your dream, or are you talking about lucid dreaming, where you're actually in the dream and um, and and causing changes to happen? Mm. That's a really great question because it could actually be either way. This could be okay. when you're awake. So active imagination usually is done when you're awake and you're working on the dream by in your mind's eye re-entering the dream and bringing with you these new people and objects into the dream as you consciously and actively do that, uh, interact. Or if you are able to lucid dream, which for your listeners means simply to be aware that you're dreaming while you're dreaming, to be awake in your sleep, so to speak. And if you are able to do that, by all means, before interacting with your dream any further, if it's a nightmare and you are lucid, Say, gather up the safety uh, people and objects and have them with you to help you in the dream if, you, if you're still dreaming. I, I, I actually, I, I'm very lucky. I very rarely personally have nightmares, but um, the early stages of the pandemic, uh, I had a nightmare where I was underwater and trying to swim up to the top to, you know, to break the surface so I could breathe. But I wasn't sure in my dream if I could do it or not. And at some point in the nightmare, I became lucid, and I said, oh, I'm dreaming. So in my dream, I have full control. So I realized while I was asleep that because I was dreaming, 
I could hold my breath for as long as I needed to, and there wouldn't be any issue. So I just did that, and I swam up to the top and broke the surface and took a breath. So <laughs> what a that was what a, a great memory. Yeah, of, of of having gotten lucid in the dream spontaneously to be able to say, oh, I can be an amphibian and hold my breath underwater until I can breathe air again, which in waking life is not necessarily the truth. That's a great example. It really is. Um, yeah, I've never been able to, to have a lucid dream, um, which I, I just think it would be very interesting to be to wake up in the middle of your dream and, and be able to, to alter the course of it. Um, okay, so let's let's talk about recurring dreams. And um, you know, I had a dream for probably three decades mm. um, that I write about it in my memoir, Cliff Edge Road. But um, it's it's involving my house that I grew up in, and one of the doors, and my father. And um, the thing is, it's about the locks on the doors. So. My father is telling me in this dream that I'm safe. He's leaving. Everything's bolted. Everything's safe. And then he leaves, and then I touch the door, and it just pops open, and I can't relock it. When he comes mm. home, I, I say to him, I've been terrified, and he does it, and it locks. Well, this was about my childhood safety. Um, I never felt safe in my home. And mm. so I had this dream, and at 42, I went into therapy for the first time. And I resolved mm-hmm. my childhood conflicts, and the dream mm-hmm. stopped then. So right. I, I just think that was very, very interesting. It was so symbolic, but it was it touched on every aspect of my fears as a child. Yeah, yeah. Well, a I'm sorry you had to experience not being safe at home. And B, I'm glad you were able to get the experience of finding help and resolving this this decades-long nightmare that kept showing you and and telling you, you know, honey, there's unfinished business here. You gotta you gotta work this out a little more. And, and that's sort of the essence of a repetitive dream. It's like an SOS from our unconscious. It's saying mm, you're still not really feeling completely safe in some parts of your being, and we're gonna keep showing up in your dreams and nightmares until you do something actively in your life to change your habits, your thoughts, your belief systems, your way of being, whatever it is that needs to change, or maybe to move if you're still, if you're not in a safe environment, um, until such time as your whole being says, okay, we're, we're good now. And it sounds like that's, that's what you did, so, so good for you. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I found that very interesting that they stopped really at that time. Um, so, do do most of us have recurring dreams? Well, I'm not sure what most of us means exactly. Um, sometimes we have recurring dreams because we're working something through. Sometimes we have recurring dreams because our systems have their own sort of idiosyncratic dream language, like we have our own dream vocabulary, so we have things show up in common metaphors and images because that's part of our vocabulary. 
just like there might be a couple of words that you would co- you commonly use. Like you have some favorite words that every time you're you're interviewing a guest on your show, you know, you have a phrase that kind of comes out because that's just part of your repertoire of how you might ask a question or say something. And I think that works that way in our dreams as well. We have themes that kind of show up because it's part of our dream repertoire. Um, so on one hand, we can say yes. Many people have repetitive dreams. And sometimes they're fun, and sometimes they're delightful, and sometimes they're interesting. But if they're scary, and if they're nightmares, that generally points to something that's unfinished business, that's unresolved, that we need to take a look at. Um, because our systems want to be healed, right? Our systems want to. This is a principle of, of ADEP, which is um, Diana Fosha's uh, therapeutic style of work, which says, our systems want to return to homeostasis, and we do not want to remain out of balance. So our system is trying to get us back into balance, and if we're not in balance, it's going to keep knocking on the door of our unconscious with these repetitive nightmares until we do something actively different in our waking life to, to bring ourselves back into balance. Children, young children, toddlers, um, generally go through this stage of having night terrors. I know both of my children did. Um, mm. What is that about? What's causing that? So um, it's, a, it's sort of, there's a couple ways. One is it's related to what we talked a little bit about before, that this is sort of a, a, a normative developmental stage when children are beginning to sort of push against the edges of their world and want a little more power, but they don't have it. So feeling disempowered or disenfranchised is a feeling they walk around with because they want to have cookies before dinner, and mommy and daddy say no, and so they feel that they're thwarted or not understood, and so that shows up in their dreams. So that's one side. Um, the night terrors are a little bit different, and if I'm not mistaken, there is a biological sort of endocrine com- component here where certain neurochemicals are released, where a child because night terrors are different than nightmares. Like a nightmare is a, a super bad dream. A night terror often, and I don't know if this is what your kids had or not, someone, a kid will wake up in the night screaming, not have any idea of why, and sometimes not even know that they're awake or asleep. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. That's exactly what I'm talking about, yes. Yeah. So there's something going on at a physiological level where they haven't quite trapped traverse the threshold between sleeping and waking, and their minds haven't quite settled in one or the other. And it's like being in the void, I think, like free fall in a void, and, and how terrifying must that feel? And my hypothesis is that that is kind of what's going on at a certain developmental stage with kids where the, their boundaries, if you will, are just not as firmly um, solidified as they are in adults, so that that space between awake and asleep becomes vaguer and blurrier, and it's really scary if they don't know what it is. Mm, okay. Yeah, I remember when my daughter, I mean, my first child, when she had it, I didn't know what they were, and we'd take her out of her crib, and we'd talk to her, and we'd, and, and she wouldn't respond. She was still sleeping. She was still mm-hmm. in, the, in, in the night terror, you know, and um, we finally realized that, um, she's not awake and this is not conscious and she can't stop herself, you know, this way. So uh, that was, you know, 
and I think my my second child had the same thing. Um, How terrifying so, for the parent, right? When you don't know, yeah. First time parent, yeah. when you when you don't know what that is, it's like, why are you waking up screaming? I can't help you. Why can't I help you? Why don't you stop? It was very very strange. Okay, so let's talk about um, shadow work and um, mm. befriending the fear. What is that uh, about? How does that um, come into play with our dreams? So we all have a shadow side, which isn't a negative, but it is the part of us or the parts of us that we haven't yet looked at, we haven't yet examined, or we're afraid of, or we're ashamed or embarrassed of, or we've been taught are wrong or bad as, as kids. We've been, been criticized for them. So these parts of ourselves can show up in our dreams and nightmares as other characters in the dream. And the, the word itself, the shadow, is, is a Jungian phrase. And, and Jung um, talks about how we all have both a light side and a shadow side. And there's a quote in my book, I don't have it in front of me right now, but Jung says something like, you know, it never ceases to amaze me to what lengths people will go to to avoid looking at their own shadow. (laughs) Then he goes on to say, and we heal not by ignoring the darkness, but by making the darkness visible. So part of our work is to turn and face those dark sides, the, the shadows, the, the, the monsters, the scary people, the, the dangerous things in our dreams, using the Gaia method if necessary to be safe enough so that we turn and face our shadow and get to know those parts of ourselves that we've separated out in the service of reintegration of that fragmented self part so we can become whole and, and heal. And, and that's the shadow work. That's the shadow work that we all do in various, well, we all could be doing in various ways, shapes, and forms. Hmm. So if a child, if you're having a dream about this shadowy, dark monster chasing you around the house or something like that, that could just be a representation of you, of your shadow? Yes. Yes. Hmm of either some aspect of yourself that you've disowned or don't want to look at or that was hurt or something you're afraid of that is outside of you but is not actually necessarily in the room with you right now because you're having a dream. It's in the room of your dream, but it's not where you're actually sleeping. Hmm. Interesting. What are some um, common nightmares that people have? Oh, my goodness. Um, So I'm going to answer that in two ways. One is every dream is idiosyncratic to the dreamer. So in some ways, everyone has their own repertoire, as I said before, of dream symbols. But we also live in shared culture and also a shared humanity of a physiological body. So we have some common themes that show up. So people commonly will dream of, or have nightmares in particular, of being chased, of falling of getting trapped, um, losing teeth is a common nightmare theme, um, dreaming of scary creepy crawlers, uh, spiders or, or, or snakes is, is a common theme, 
Um, feeling confined or trapped is a common nightmare theme. So basically anything that might represent for you feeling disempowered or helpless or in danger, any way that would be represented, whether it's being chased by a tiger or chased by a demon or um, having a tsunami threatening to over-flood your, your home, these are our common kinds of themes for nightmares. So the dream, I think, I think um, a lot of people have naked dreams, and I don't know that you would necessarily classify that as a nightmare, would you? Well, again, it would depend on how you felt about being naked in the dream, right? <laughs> if you're like, this is so awesome, I love skinny dipping, I can't wait to get in the water, that is not a nightmare. That is like, get me to the lake, that's really fun. Right. But if in your dream you're mortified, you're embarrassed, you're ashamed, that gets more into the nightmare. Or if like, oh, my God, I'm naked and I'm going to get hurt, I'm not safe, then that's definitely a nightmare. Right, right. So, I mean, the naked dreams that I've had, yeah, I'm out, I'm in a store or something like that, and then I, it dawns on me that I'm naked and it's terrifying. Oh. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and then the other dreams, um, I think, are where you – have uh, a test, you know, there's a test tomorrow at school and you haven't attended class all year or um, something like that. You haven't studied, you're not prepared for it. Uh, I think these can be very symbolic and, and they're scary, though. Right. So these two types of dreams that you're talking about um, are what I would put in the category of anxiety dreams more than like real big nightmare dreams, unless, of course, they were terrifying in, in your nightmare but the, right. the first one the naked dream you know if we go for the metaphor of what does it mean being naked is like does it have to do with being exposed with being overexposed with being seen for more than you want to be seen uh, for being embarrassed of something so we we think about the metaphor of that and what that might mean um, and then the other one is is again so common what aren't we prepared for? Is there something we haven't studied up enough for? Is there a task of some sort coming up in our lives or that we're currently engaged in that we just don't quite feel up to up to snuff for, in which case we'd have the, I didn't study for my test dream. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Um, in Chapter 9, you talk about embodied and spiritual dream work to soothe and resolve your nightmares. Um, how do we do this? What is this about? Mm. So my orientation and perspective is when in doing healing work is to work from a body, mind, spirit perspective. And when we engage all the parts of our being, either in therapy work and healing or and or, of course, in dream work and nightmare work, then we're engaging in attending to more parts of ourselves than if we only use our cognitive, linear, talking parts of our brain. So when we have a nightmare, we are literally alive in the dream. Our, our dreaming brain does not discern between being awake and being asleep in terms of how our body responds. Anyone who's had a nightmare knows you can wake up with a pounding heart, but you have not been running a race in, in your bed, or wake up you know, with a lump in your throat or a dry mouth and... There's no physical reason for that necessarily, but this is your body's somatic response to the emotions that you've been having. 
So there are a lot of different ways of doing somatic and spiritual work in waking healing life um, and to apply them to dream work. So I invite your listeners to really explore how to incorporate attending to the body as well as the mind in doing their dream work, Um, whether it's through focusing, which is Eugene Gendlin's work. He was sort of the grandfather of the uh, body-mind movement, um, where we tune into a felt sense in our body and kind of listen to our body for information and then translate the sensation that we attend to into into language. Um, and then there's a variety of other somatic styles of working, ranging from Peter Levine's somatic experiencing to Pat Ogden's um, psychomotor psychotherapy to Feldenkrais. There's a lot of different ways of doing body work that I can apply or you can apply in your dream work and when also we need to attend to what's the state of our spirit and our soul in our life but also as we're trying to heal from nightmares and many people speak about having been through traumatic events as soul shattering experiences where they just feel crushed or shattered by the events that they've experienced in their life So we need to attend to what is balm for the soul, what helps heal your heart and your soul. And for some people, that's going out into nature. And um, one way to do that with your dream work is to find some way to do something symbolic or actual to commemorate or mark or move the dream forward. It might be that the message from Healing Your Nightmare is you're supposed to go out every day and take a walk in the woods. Or it might be that the message is get some bulbs and plant them in your garden and watch them grow and know that when you've planted the bulbs and they winter over here in the Boston area, we we plant bulbs in the fall and they stay underground for all effect and purposes, not alive. But in the spring, we see, I I call it new shoot season, the green growth just kind of pushing up through the ground and to know that we've participated in creating this new growth that's pushing up through the ground into the light again and that we can do that for our soul as well. Um, So to find whatever way you or your listeners connect with something that allows you to feel held and protected that's bigger than yourself, um, if you um, go to church or synagogue or mosque, by all means, use traditional religious practices. If you don't, find something that speaks to you, that brings you some peace. You know, walking by the river, um, having a cup of tea, uh, thinking about a departed relative, anything that allows you to have a sense of awe. For some people, beauty, right? I know for, for me that one of the things I love to do to calm and and restore my own soul is to have beautiful things so i long ago when i was in my early 20s even you know i was a kid and i was single and i someone taught me treat yourself to a bouquet of flowers every week and Mm. i made that habit and i always have fresh flowers in my house because it's part of my spiritual practice it just restores my soul to see the beauty um, so we incorporate these things, these body-oriented and these spiritual-oriented things in the work we're doing with the nightmares to help make a, a fuller healing. So the mind is so fascinating. <laughs> um, so I've asked you a lot of questions. 
and we've touched on a lot of topics. Is there anything else that you might want to share that I haven't touched upon? Oh, thank you so much for asking. Um, let me think for a minute. Uh, you've done such a great job, and it's always such a pleasure to talk with someone who's clearly, you know, read through the book and really, you know, grokked and understood and, and pulled out salient <laughs> parts of it. So thank you for your for your You're homework. You're welcome. I, that's um, the way I do interviews. I, you know, I, I, I feel like you've put so much energy into your book um, that I really feel like, you know, it's important to talk about it. So I do read all my guests' books, or at least, you know, go through them. So, sure. yeah. Well, but I'm glad. Very yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess the only last thing I might say, because I know we're pretty near the end of our time, is the, the, the two things, really. One is that the book is written in a very conversational style, the way you and I are talking. So I've got lots of examples, some of my own dreams, some of other people's dreams, but it's written purposely in a way to be very accessible for the general reader, but it's also written in a way to be informative for the professional. So there are elements that are geared toward really understanding the nature of trauma and the nature of dissociation and how to to work with them, but they're also languaged in a way that are really accessible for for anyone who wants to, is interested in dreams, who is interested in in their own unconscious process. And then the last thing is just the orientation of the book. It's really an orientation of hope and healing. That that's the main message is that we can all move out of these dark places, and when we heal our own nightmares and heal the shadows and the dark parts of ourselves, then we can move forward to offer that healing to our communities and to the world as well, so that we get to share in what um, is called tikkun olam or repairing the world. Um, to offer from our own place of healing, healing for the larger community as well. Thank you. What a perfect way to end this. Okay, so we're talking mm-hmm. about your book, PTS Dreams. And um, Linda, tell us where we can purchase this book and how we can get in touch with you if we'd like to work with you. Thank you. So my wonderful publisher is Llewellyn Worldwide Publishing, and you can go right to the Llewellyn website. Um, so that's one way. There's a wonderful uh, independent bookstore uh, umbrella called bookshop.org where you can connect with all the indie bookstores around the country if you go to bookshop.org. You can also, of course, get it on Amazon. Um, just type in the name of the book. And I have a website of my own called ptsdreams.com where you can read a little more about the book, you can look at some of the endorsements, what people have written about it, and there are links right on that page to take you to your your favorite place of buying. Um, And then I have a personal website, lindayaelschiller.com, if you want to read about me or see what else I do in the world or how to contact me. Okay. All right. Wow, thank you. I knew this was going to be such an interesting show. It really was. Thank you for all your knowledge. This is fascinating. Um, But thank you so much for being my guest today. I really, really appreciate you being with me today. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Heather. So nice to be here with you. (laughs) Well, have a wonderful day up in Boston while it's still nice and warm and no ice. (laughs) Right, no (laughs) ice. Not yet, right? We've hit that change season now where just this week it's now chilly at night. 
So, but it's actually okay. kind of a pleasure. I like I'm a year. Oh my gosh! Well, down here in South Florida, we welcome those kind of nights. We don't get them yeah, very often. Very yeah. often. So, okay. Well, have a wonderful day, Linda, and thanks again. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Okay. Take so care. Long. Bye-bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.